Cue sappy music. Hey there, Fighting for the Faith podcast listener. Just want to remind you at the top of the program here that Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know, no, the music isn't working. Kill the music. Yeah, sorry, I see other guys use sappy music. I, uh, bad idea. Remind me to talk to you after the program. Anyway, just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions to keep bringing this program to you. If you don't support us financially already, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons. Fill it all out. You know what to do. Or if you would like to do the traditional thing, you can make your check payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, now you can play your music. Yeah. Enjoy listening to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, January 3rd, 2013. So far, every bill that I've paid, I've got the year right when I wrote the check. (laughs) I'm so excited. (laughs) Small things like that make me happy. Usually my brain isn't that sharp, just saying. Was afraid I'd be writing 2012 into like March, you know? Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseboro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Now, something that I want to kind of start the the, pro, the, the program off with this idea, this concept, and that's this, is that sound doctrine and the need for it and the dangers of false doctrine is not my pet peeve. Now, from time to time, I get accused of it being my pet peeve, but it's really not my pet peeve. It just happens to be my focus of my apologetics, you know, emphasis at the moment, you know, because of what I do for a living. But um, that's it's not my pet peeve. But, but I'll, I will say this, that based upon what Scripture says about the importance of sound doctrine and the dangers of false doctrine and false teachers and false prophets— um, I think it would be a safe way to describe it as this is one of God's pet peeves. Because over and again, especially as you read through the New Testament, you find over and again warning after warning after warning after warning about false teachers and false prophets and those who come in Jesus' name bringing a different message, those who tamper with God's word. And, um, and or they teach their dreams or their vision. And this is not just a New Testament theme as well. I would point you to something like Jeremiah chapter 23 or 22. Take a look at that. Or look at Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah. Or you look at, you know, look at the Pentateuch, Moses warning about false prophets, okay? And these aren't men warning about false prophets and false teachers. This is God warning about them. Because keep in mind, the same author... Okay, there there is a human agent and there is a divine author behind every book of the Bible. So when we read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, you know, Deuteronomy, or you know, Numbers, um, you know, Mo, they, those are called you know the books of Moses. Yes, Moses wrote those down. Correct. 
Okay, But Moses wrote those down as he was carried along and inspired by God the Holy Spirit. So God the Holy Spirit is the author, really the author of note of the Torah. Okay, Then when we get into the New Testament, the epistles of Paul, yes, Paul is the one who wrote those epistles, but he wrote them theonoustos. That means God breathed. And therefore, since they were God-breathed, then God the Holy Spirit was the one carrying the Apostle Paul along as he wrote these things down. God the Holy Spirit is responsible for the writings of Paul the same way that he's responsible for the writings of, well, Moses and other biblical authors. So when we point you to the fact that Scripture, Scripture um, is very, very, mm, uh, let's say, uptight, okay, about the importance of sound doctrine and, and the dangers of false doctrine, I'm not just saying that Scripture's uptight about it. In reality, what I'm saying is that God is uptight about it. He really is uptight about it, and he doesn't turn a blind eye to it. In fact, over and again, he warns us to be on guard for false teachers, false prophets, wolves in sheep's clothing, those who wouldn't spare the flock, ravenous wolves and things like that. These are these are warnings given to us by none other than God himself. So, Sound theology, sound doctrine, rightly handling God's word is not something that is, well, unimportant or can be relegated to that bucket of, well, that's just no big deal. It really is a big deal. It truly, really is a big deal. And the reason why is because, well, we all have a real enemy. And his, he's the devil. You get what I'm saying here? And he's not going to rest until your carcass is in a grave. At least he's not going to leave you alone until that day. And that being the case, if you bear the name of Christ, if you confess that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and rose again on the third day bodily for your justification, if you are baptized in his name, the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and you are proclaiming Christ and him crucified to your neighbors and to your friends, well, there's a word for you. We call you a target. <laughs> it just goes with the territory, you know? It's one of those things. And Satan, he's a deceiver. He is a liar. And the, what he really is going to try to do is to get you off topic or get you believing a lie. And the way he does that is by tempting you or sending your way uh, pe- people who you believe to be people or men of God, or nowadays women of God, <clears throat> that should alert you to something there that they probably aren't, um, that, you know, who are claiming direct revelations or dreams or vision or catch the latest thing or whatever. And, you know, okay, yeah, even though they're coming to you in the name of Christ, you must, must, must do the work of a Berean. The the scriptures tell us that the Bereans were of a more noble character than the Thessalonians because when the Apostle Paul, we're talking about the Apostle Paul here. I mean, I don't know about you, but me personally, okay, if, if, you know, I have like the utmost respect for the apostles and the prophets. Okay. It's, it's, it's the respect along these lines is that God called them to a specific task and put them in a particular office, the office of prophet or the apostle, uh, 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 the office of apostle that God is the one who, who put them there. And that these are men who they're through their lifetime ran their course 
and died in the faith, right? Okay, these are not somebody that you just kind of, you know, they're like, they're nobodies. They're actually kind of somebodies, but they're not somebodies because they're somebody in themselves, but they're somebody because God made them somebody. Does that make sense? And so the Apostle Paul, who started off as the murderer and persecutor of Christianity, Saul, this is a guy who... Um, was abnormally born as an apostle, as First Corinthians 15 tells us, that he was abnormally born because he's an eyewitness of the resurrection of Jesus uh, long after Jesus had ascended into heaven. And he is an eyewitness of the resurrection because Jesus personally appeared to him while he was on the road to Damascus to round up Christians and have them arrested. Okay, Jesus appeared to him, you know, and, you know, the, the proverbial saying is knocked him off of his horse, you know, blinded him. And uh, and now and then he became the Apostle Paul, the one who brought the message of Christ and him crucified and raised again on the third day to the Gentiles. He was the Apostle to the Gentiles. This is a man who planted churches and would you know, preach Christ anywhere he had the uh, hearing to preach Christ at. It, the open marketplace up on you know, Mars Hill, you know, it just wherever he could preach Christ, he would preach Christ, right? So, I mean, this is somebody who, you know, just in, in respect for the office of apostle, I mean, there's some authority that goes with that, but the scriptures tell us that the Bereans tested the gospel that they heard from Paul. They looked in the scriptures to see if what he was saying was true. And rather than being rebuked by God, uh, you know, how dare, it's enough that he's the apostle. Paul, just believe him. That's not that's not the the position that scripture takes or I should say God takes. No, this the position that God takes through scripture is that he calls the Bereans those of noble character. They had a more noble character than the Thessalonians because they tested. So we live in treacherous days and, and understand this that when you look at the prophecies in scripture regarding the imminent return of Jesus Christ, one of the major prophecies given by Jesus Christ as well as the Apostle Paul is that the church, that in the visible church, there would be great apostasy, a falling away and a rebellion against sound doctrine and against what God has revealed in his word, that there would be false teachers and false prophets, some of them performing signs and wonders to, as according to Christ, to mislead, if possible, even the elect. You see, this is not this is not an agenda that Rosebro concocted and cooked up on his own. No, the fighting for the faith well teases out a very important agenda in scripture. The need for the preaching and proclamation of Christ and him crucified and the preaching and proclamation of sound doctrine of rightly handling God's word of not tampering with it and correctly teaching it so that sinners like me and like you can hear the gospel and hear the the forgiveness of sins won by Christ on the cross, be confronted with our sins and daily be brought to repentance and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins so that we can bear fruit with that message because truly that is the good news, the gospel that is the hope of the world, the hope that the only hope that will get us through the soon-to-be-occurring day of God's judgment and wrath, when all men will be called before the throne of Christ to give an accounting of their life. 
And if you are not in Christ and your name is not written in the book of life and you do not believe in him and trust him for the forgiveness of your sins, then according to scriptures, you will perish eternally. That's what's at stake. Now, in the grand scheme of things, that to me seems to rise to the top of our priority list. So that's what guides and you know, and puts wind in the sail, if you would, of Pirate Christian Radio fighting for the faith. So I just want to lead off with that thought. Now, let's talk about what we're going to do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. It's going to be a long edition. That's I, it, Yesterday was almost three hours. Today's going to be close to that. Okay. I apologize. That's just the way it is. You were, you, we took the pirate ship out of dry dock and found ourselves immediately in a skirmish. I mean, <laughs> you know, you read the uh, the Gospel of Mark, Euthus. You know, this is a this is a Greek word that uh, that Mark uses constantly. It's immediately, and then immediately Jesus, and immediately, and immediately. We no sooner did we take out the uh, the pirate ship out of dry dock than we went that Euthus immediately. We were involved in a yeah. Well, that's how it's going. So here's what we're going to do today. We're going to dedicate the, you know what's left of this hour and on into the early parts of the second hour. <laughs> to uh, unpacking some of the stuff that's been going on at Passion 2013. We're going to take a look, at, take a listen to a um, <clears throat> a testimony uh, from the um, lead singer for Jesus Culture, which is one of the featured bands at Passion 2013, so that you can hear for yourself who's been invited to lead worship over at Passion 2013. Then we're going to take some time and listen to uh, Judah Smith. I've... Uh, I listened to his session today, and I got to tell you, um, that was absolutely seductive and false teaching that he gave us. And not only that, it falls back into the category of uh, dangerous for other reasons, and I'll explain later. But his he, he ended up giving a, a lecture on community. And uh, being a seeker-driven guy and somebody who's closely associated with the Druckerites, when you hear a Druckerite talking about community, you need to know what's going on there. So we're going to unpack some of the things that Judah Smith said today. And then uh, when we get to our sermon review time somewhere in hour number two, literally we're going to be listening to an entire sermon, no joke, an entire sermon based upon a prophetic dream that a pastor claims to have received for how the church is to position itself for the year 2013. I don't know if we've ever quite done a sermon review like this, but then again, we may have. It's just that, you know, being getting older and my brain creeping into creeping decrepitude, you know, I, I just may have forgotten about it. But the, anyway, so we've got a lot of ground to cover. I strongly recommend that you uh, make yourself comfortable. Um, because of some of the stuff that you're about to hear, I strongly advise that you take all of the proper precautions. In fact, here's our standard warning. And if, if you end up hurting yourself while listening to this edition of Fighting for the Faith, I, well, we're, not, we're not responsible because, well, we warned you. Here we go. Warning, fighting for the faith can be dangerous to your health. Listening with caution is strongly urged while doing any of the following activities. Operating heavy, deadly equipment, playing Farmville, or any time-wasting, brain-numbing activity. For sudden awakening at the sound of a particularly stupid isogetical statement could cause neck strain. 
drinking liquids, drinking hot liquids, having liquids too nearby, not having any liquids nearby. The following medical conditions have been known to occur while listening to Fighting for the Faith, cranial keyboard embedment syndrome, sinu-nasal liquid spewment disorder, steering wheel pounding clenched fist strain, continual gaping dry mouth atosis, and frustrative disbelief brain explosion. Please take proper precautions. Drinking straws, padding, and duct tape are recommended. This is normally our Bill Johnson update music whenever we do an update for Bill Johnson from Bethel in uh, Redding, California. Um, (laughs) Because the truth is out there somewhere, but it's not definitely not in Bethel. Uh, The reason why we're using this update music now is because we're going to be listening to, well, a personal testimony uh, given by Kim Walker Smith of Jesus Culture. This would be the Praise and Worship Band, one of the Praise and Worship Bands featured at passion 2013 this past week and um well jesus culture they come out of bethel and redding and they basically believe and buy into the heresies and ideas of bill johnson so that's why we're playing this music so let's go ahead and kill the yeah there we go i didn't particularly like that rendition of it anyway but so without any further ado here is kim walker smith and her, um, well, in- encounter with Jesus Christ. I'll let her explain. Here we go. And all of a sudden, and let me just remind you again, okay? This is not a normal thing for me to just have these encounters. Just so you know, this was from the Awakening 2011 conference. But I have one, and I just live off of that until the next one. <laughs> so... I had this encounter, all of a sudden, I see Jesus standing in front of me, and he's reaching for me like this, like he wants me to come to him. And I was terrified. I I felt like I couldn't go to where he was. I felt... I felt ashamed. I felt scared. I felt like I didn't deserve to be close to him. I couldn't even look him in the face. And Jesus (laughs) is completely irresistible. I always say that there are three things in my life that are completely irresistible to me. One is, of course, Jesus. Number two is my husband. And number three is chocolate. (laughs) Completely irresistible. So glad that Jesus is right up there with chocolate. Anyways. So, irresistible. I go to Jesus. I fall in his arms. And as I'm laying in his arms, I'm still feeling kind of afraid to really even look at him. All of a sudden, this thought comes into my mind, and I know this is not my thought. I would never, ever, ever in a million trillion years think this. And I think I need to ask him two questions. I need to ask him, how much do you love me? And what were you thinking when you created me? (laughs) really okay so you've fallen into his arms and you're gonna just go ahead how much do you love me jesus and what were you thinking when you created me Uh uh-huh okay 
And as this thought comes into my mind, is anyone else just going, yeah, no, this is not Jesus who she um, was cuddling with. I'm thinking, no way. I am not asking those questions. Now, here's what you need to know. As if. About me and why I was so afraid to ask those questions. One is, when I was a little girl, I had heard someone say something. And long story short, I got it in my head somehow that I was a mistake. I thought that I was supposed to be born a boy, but I was born a girl. And God made a really big mistake. And now here I am, just this big mistake, and I literally believed that my entire life. And to ask God, what were you thinking when you created me? I really believed that he would say to me, well, I made a mistake, and I was trying to make a boy and came out a girl, and now I'm just trying to make the best of a bad situation. I know, it sounds ridiculous, huh? That's really what I believed. It's crazy. And then to ask him, how much do you... No, trust me, the thing that's really crazy is that you believe that you really had this encounter with Jesus. That's kind of the crazy thing. Love me. I felt like he'd say, well, you're a mistake, so how much could I love you? I mean, I think you're okay. I mean, this is what's going through my head. I know this sounds crazy, but these are the kind of lies that I was believing. And all of a sudden, out loud, in the natural, outside of my vision, okay, over the microphone... Yeah, I mean, immediately the question that comes to my mind as I'm listening to this is, did the folks at twenty at Passion 2013 not have a doctrinal vetting process to make sure that those who were, they were featuring there? Because here's the deal, you know, you give the stage to somebody like Kim Walker-Smith at Passion 2013, you know, in front of 60,000 young, um, young adults and... There's probably more of them going to go, man, I like the music. I better go find out more about Jesus culture and maybe get an album or two. Maybe find out more about what they believe. And you see what I'm saying here? You know, why would you want to feature such a band who's obviously theologically into the wingnut category? And that, by the way, that is no insult on wingnuts out there. I just want to let you know that. But let me continue. Anthony Skinner says, you need to ask God two questions. And my heart starts pounding. What? You need to ask God, how much do you love me? And what were you thinking when you created me? What? So now, now I feel like the little kid that just got caught with their hand in the cookie jar. That's how I feel. I feel completely exposed. I felt so angry. Like, Anthony, you just said it out loud in front of everybody. Now everybody knows, and he probably hurt you. (laughs) Now I have to ask. I was so upset. And finally, I'm just, I'm trembling, and I can see myself in Jesus' arms, just, just trembling and shaking. I can't even look at him. And finally, I get the courage, and Let me tell you, my courage was about this big, but thank the Lord, that is all you need. You just need that much courage, okay? I finally say, how much do you love me? I'm kind of scared. And all of a sudden, Jesus puts me down, and he starts stretching out his arms, okay? They're each going out each way, and it looked like Stretch Armstrong, 
And a lot of times I say Stretch Armstrong, and some of the younger people don't know who I'm talking about, okay? He was a superhero. And by the way, that makes me feel old, and I am not old, okay? <laughs> so if you don't know who Stretch Armstrong is, you need to Google him. But he was like a superhero, and his arms and legs and stuff could like stretch out like spaghetti noodles, like forever. And you're like falling off a cliff, and he'd be like, like, save you, okay? So Jesus... Okay? His arms are like stretching out forever and ever. And I'm looking and looking and I can't see. Yeah, this is a woman who definitely is a disciple of Bill Johnson. Not of the scriptures, though. Um, yeah, I, this Jesus she's talking about, the stretch Armstrong Jesus, that ain't the biblical Jesus. That's a different Jesus. That's a false Jesus. The ends. I, I can't see where it's ending. And he starts laughing. And he goes, I love you this much. <laughs> and he's laughing hysterically. Sounds like a demon to me. And then I start laughing. I'm cracking up. I'm, I'm suddenly like, I'm, I'm becoming like so full of joy. And I'm just like, what? You love me that much? I can't even see the ends. It's going on forever and ever and ever. Oh my goodness, I can't you love me that much. This this crazy happiness is like welling up inside of me and I'm laughing with him and and in the end of it I'm like, you know what? I'm good. I don't need to ask that other question. Nah. Hey, I'm good. Hey, we made some great progress today. This has been wonderful. We should do this again sometime. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Like, this is how I am, okay? And a few months later... Who's she really teaching about? Jesus or herself? Go with herself. She's not teaching us anything about Jesus. A few months. I'm at the prayer house... And it's like really early in the morning. It, I, I liked to go there when the sun was coming up and I'd, I'd just sit and pray and watch the sun come up, which by the way, that is a miracle in itself because I am not a morning person. <laughs> There's like this period of time in my life where I don't know, it's just the Lord. But anyway, so I'm there and nothing is going on, you know, out of the ordinary. I'm just sitting and reading the Bible and all, I have my, my back to the door, and all of a sudden, I feel the presence of the Lord literally walk into the room. And I just, I mean, I, I, I suddenly felt this, almost like a, the fear of the Lord, this, this trembling inside of me. And I can feel him walking towards me, close to me, and I suddenly had this revelation he has come for that question. And I am freaking out. And there is nowhere to go. There is only one door, and it is on the other side of him. <laughs> and I am stuck. And I feel him just come right up to me. His presence is so strong. I can't even turn. I'm just sitting there like this. And just my heart is pounding. And I feel him saying, Kim, please ask me that question. And I'm like, oh, hello, Jesus. Good morning. I'm great. I don't need to ask that question. I'm doing so good. Have you seen how good I'm doing lately? <laughs> the 
the nervous laugh. And Jesus is like... Again, the question, why would Jesus culture, and she's their lead singer, why would they be invited to lead worship at Passion 2013? It's clear that the Jesus she believes in ain't the biblical Jesus. And she's got all kinds of theological problems here that are, well, too much to number at the moment. Um, Clearly, she falls outside of Orthodox Christianity. She is somebody who is deceived, who believes in a false Jesus. I wouldn't be surprised if she believes in a false gospel, too, a false spirit. Why would they be featured at uh, Passion 2013? We continue, though. I mean, she's regaling us with this interesting experience. Which, by the way, this isn't the biblical Jesus she's actually talking with. Please, please ask me that question. Ah, you know, I'm good. I'm good. Jesus, hey, hey, you know what? It's all right. It's all right. It's all cool. We're cool. We're cool, Jesus. And I feel him again. Please, please ask me that question. And again, he is completely irresistible. And I fall on the floor I start sobbing like I do in his presence. And I finally say to him, Jesus, what were you thinking when you created me? And suddenly I'm standing with Jesus and just in front of me is God, the father, and he's got a table in front of him. And so now she's having a direct revelation of Jesus and God, the father. That's weird because scripture says that no one has seen. He reaches into his heart and he rips this chunk off of his heart. So God reaches into his heart and rips a chunk out of his heart. You mean like, well, it sounds a lot like, hmm, hang on. By the way, this is Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. If you haven't seen the movie, they rip the guy's heart out. It's disgusting. Anyway, we continue. He throws it on the table, and it's suddenly like clay or Play-Doh. And he starts molding it and shaping it. And I'm like, Jesus, what is he doing? What's he making? What is he making? And all of a sudden, I see he makes me. I'm there on the table. And he reaches over. And he grabs this box and brings it over and he sets me inside the box. And you know those little jewelry boxes that little girls have where you open it up and it plays music and the little ballerina like twirls? Hello? Do you know? Are you sure this wasn't a nightmare? Talking about? (laughs) No? Do they not make those anymore? My goodness. I'm not old, okay? 
And um, it was a box like that. And he shuts the box, and he gets in front of it, and he's like really excited. He kind of looks around, and he opens the box real fast like that. And when he does, inside, I start twirling and dancing and singing to him and worshiping him. And he goes, woohoo! Woo! He like runs around. He runs around. He comes back and he closes the box. And he's like, and he throws it open again. And he's like, woo! And he starts running around in circles again. And he comes back over and he closes it again. And every, I mean, this is going on and on and on and on. And it's so crazy. He gets so excited every single time. Yeah, crazy is the right word here. Um, mm-hmm. It reminded me of those little kids with the, the jack in the box. And they're like shocked every single time it pops up as if they don't know it's going to do that. Right? It was like that. It's like, it's like he was so surprised and so happy every single time. And I'm, I'm standing with Jesus watching this going, what is happening? What is, what is this? Why, why is he so happy? And all of a sudden, he reaches in the box and he picks me up and he puts me in the palm of his hand. And I go from being there watching with Jesus to being in the palm of the Father's hand. And he's bringing me close to him like this. And I'm watching like, what's happening? What's going on? I'm getting like closer and closer. Okay, enough, enough. Um, This isn't biblical Christianity. That's not Christianity. She didn't really actually meet Jesus nor God the Father. Uh, This is, well, demonic. Because it takes our eyes off the biblical Jesus. Puts our eyes squarely on Kim Walker Smith. Oh, yeah, this is the woman who's met Jesus and who was in the palm of the Father's hands and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And none of this is Christianity. This is a huge satanic deception, which then leads back to the question that I was asking just not too long ago. And that's, um, do they not have a a theological doctrinal vetting process out there at uh, Passion 2013? Why would they feature somebody like her and Jesus culture to lead worship. I'm not sure what Jesus they were worshiping, you know, but it ain't the biblical Jesus. That's for sure. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Click on the subscribe button or follow me on Twitter. My name there is at pirate Christian. We'll take a quick break and then we're going to be listening to part of Judah Smith's lecture today from Passion 2013. Dangerous, deadly stuff. You'll find out why on the other side of the break. Stay tuned. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs>
Hello and uh, greetings to the Wallace Tapley Show. I'm your host, Wallace Tapley, and my official title is the only mostly accurate prophet of the end times. Uh, some of my competitors call me the second and two-tenths weasel of the apocalypse, but I do my best to ignore their comments of hate and derision. I, I do have an update this week. Ah, uh, yes, uh, my direct revelations from God this week have told me something very, very special. It should be coming in right about now. This is a goodie. It reads, This blessing is for a certain person who's currently living in Italy and is the owner of a bistro. It says that you'll be receiving one million euros. Uh, make that 500,000. Uh, 10,000. Five. Oh, um, yes. You're receiving five euros today. Heaven be praised. Oh, it seems that I'm getting another download. I do believe that it's the result of next year's Super Bowl. Uh, This could turn out to be very profitable indeed. It says the winner of the next year's Super Bowl will be the Chicago Cubs. No, wait, that's not right. Uh, I mean the L.A. Lakers. No, that's not right either. I I do apologize, folks. My computer suffers from Plato's tenfold error syndrome from time to time. Oh, here we go. It says... Handshake error. Well, that's all the time we have for today, folks. See you next time on the Wallace Tapley Show. Goodbye! You can register now for the 10th annual Branson Worldview Weekend in beautiful Branson, Missouri, Friday night, April 26th, Saturday, April 27th, and Sunday morning, April 28th, 2013. Full details are at worldviewweekend.com forward slash Branson. That's worldviewweekend.com forward slash Branson. Speakers this year will include Ken Ham of Answers in Genesis. We'll also have speaking with us for the first time his son-in-law, Bodie Hodge, along with Pastor Jesse Johnson, a regular guest here on Worldview Weekend We'll also be joined by Chris Pinto with a brand new presentation. Mike Gendron will also bring a new presentation, as will Dr. Jimmy DeYoung. We'll also be joined this year for the first time at a Branson Worldview Weekend by Jason Carlson and Jared Carlson. We'll also be joined for the first time in a conference setting by Carl Tykrib. Full details at worldviewweekend.com. We have a family rate and group rate. You can go ahead and purchase your tickets now and receive priority upfront seating when you purchase your tickets now at worldviewweekend.com forward slash Branson. And join us April 26, 27, and 28 in Branson, Missouri. Missouri. <laughs> the spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner, and the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheapo Air as one of our featured advertisers. Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, 
We have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, click on the web banner, and book your spring or summer travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That web address again is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support. Warning, don't get swept up in the moment or in an experience. Truth is determined by what God has said in his word, not what you experience in your life. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. Are you a member of our crew yet? If not, then please, please, well, join our crew. Don't just consider it. Do it. And the way you do that is by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons are right there on the homepage in the center. One says donate. The other says join our crew. Click on the join our crew button and join our crew. It's a fantastic way to support us, and it's only $6.95 every month. Automatically comes out of your account on the 30, every 30 days or right after this day you signed up it's a great way to support us it helps us budget our finances and helps take some of the peaks and valleys out of our month-to-month giving so that we can better plan what we're doing and not have to go through you know the the yo-yo effect financially it's so if you're not a crew member do so click on the don't uh, join our crew button and, and of course if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute you can do so by clicking on the donate button or make your gift payable to fighting for the faith and send it to post office box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, we're gonna now going to do an extended uh, section here where we're going to take a, a look at the things that Judah Smith said today at Passion 2013. I found this uh, plenary by Judah Smith to be fascinating, okay, and for many reasons. Now, I don't have time to do a full-blown explanation of this, so I'm going to piggyback on a teaching that I did in May of last year, in fact, if you go to the archives of Fighting for the Faith, fightingforthefaith.com, go to May, I think it's the May 11th episode of Fighting for the Faith, and it's entitled, Resistance is Futile, You Will Be Assimilated into the Community. Resistance is Futile, You Will Be Assimilated into the Community. If you have not heard this lecture yet, you need to hear it. Okay, and you can do it either before you listen to this segment of Fighting for the Faith if you're a podcaster. So if you're a podcaster, go and and listen again. I think what I'll do, let me make a note to myself here. Um, I think what I'll do is I will uh, I will put it at the top of the podcast. So if you are a subscriber and uh, you know via iTunes, it'll be at the top with this episode so that you can listen to it if you haven't already listened to it. Again, it's resistance is futile. You will be assimilated into the community. You need to listen to it because some of what you're hearing, it ties into that lecture. Now, that being the case, what Judah gave us was a primer. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to spend time at looking at what he said and showing you how his argument for community, because that's 
The big thing that he did was talk about community. Uh, why his arguments regarding community actually don't jive with any of the biblical texts that he was reading from. But before I do that, now I, I'm going to I'm going to front load this, and I don't want to seem petty, but I'm going to ask a question. Okay. And, um, and I'm not going to say it because I, I think it's wrong to do so, but when did the phrase OMG become appropriate for a pastor to use, especially when he's teaching other people, like 60,000 young adults? Okay, When did the term OMG become okay? The reason I asked the question is because as I was listening to Judah Smith earlier today, I noted the fact that he didn't say OMG once, he said it several times. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to start off with uh, with the couple of instances in Judah Smith's plenary regarding community and um, and let you hear his OMGs and basically ask the question, when did this become appropriate for a pastor to do? Am I just so out of the out of touch with reality and what's going on that pastors can do this and no one cares? Because it sure did bother me, and I think it would bother you too. But here, this is like um, like two minutes into his uh, plenary, and uh, he was talking about Shark Week, you know, on on the Discovery Channel, and and how they were yelling, at, you know, they yell at you in volume and get your attention. And so he's gonna you're gonna hear him say, "Well, this got my attention," you know, you know or something to that effect. You know, I was engaged. He, well, engaged when he, he wasn't talking about getting engaged like in marriage. He was engaged like he was glued to the television set. But listen to what he says here. I'm not again. This isn't a cheap shot. I think this is a valid question to ask. But here's the first instance. Listen in. I like volume. I have to admit, I like volume. And I'm like, oh my God, this is amazing. So they, um. Yeah, okay. Let me back that up again. So he was watching television, Shark Week. And- I have to admit, I like volume. And I'm like, oh my God, this is amazing. Okay, so my question is when did this become okay for pastors to be doing? Because, you know, listen, you know, the way I was brought up, that's actually blasphemy. It's a taking of God's name in vain. It's a form of it. Now, granted, it's not the most serious form. The most serious form is when somebody twists God's word or says things regarding God that aren't true. Um, that That's the most serious form of it. But um, this was enough to get my attention and go, what's going on uh, with these young leaders that um, they would do this and it would be okay so and now here's the second part of it okay this is him talking about you know a hypothetical situation of one of the young teenagers coming to the georgia dome and seeing a rock and their reaction to seeing a rock uh, because it was dealing with something a point that he was making but here listen into this next litany there's a lot of rocks that you walked by this morning on your way into this dome there is Like not one person here this morning walked in from your hotel or wherever you were staying and you saw a pebble or a bit of a larger rock and you stopped. You're like, oh my God. That's one. Stop. Everyone. Oh my God. There it is again. Oh my God. Are you seeing what? That was the third instance. And, And just like. 30 seconds times, three times, OMG, OMG, OMG. When did this become okay? I'm not okay with it. 
Um, you know, I think that this arguably is more than just problematic. You know, rather than laughing at him, these kids should have been upset and disgusted by what he was doing. But that's just kind of the tip of the iceberg. So I, I just wanted to front load that. You know, that that was, for lack of a better way of putting it, I mean, this is the tip of the iceberg. This is the lesser of offenses, the, the greater offenses in his Bible twisting. And with that, what we're going to do is, you know, let me kind of set this up for you. He begins by reading for us 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 10-ish. And I say 10-ish because I wasn't, I'm not convinced that he actually finished verse 10. Okay, and then launches into talking about Shark Week and how, uh, you know, he was watching Shark Week and how single prey has no chance of surviving against great white sharks. But if prey, you know, stays together in a group, in a community, then, they, then you know, sharks you can't get them and they're protected. That was his point. So he sees, he reads First Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 10-ish, and he sees in this text apparently... A, a, a command or imperative from God regarding our need to be part of a community. Now, let me read the passage for you so you can at least hear it from a good translation and then understand where he goes from there. Because after the Shark Week metaphor, he then goes into discussing Genesis chapter 1 and you know where God says, let us make man in our own image and, and gives one of the classic arguments misused by the Druckerites Again, you need to listen to my lecture. Resistance is futile. You will be assimilated by the community. This is a twisting of God's word and a complete botching of a biblical teaching. And I'll explain it as we go. Does Genesis 1, where God says, let us make man in our image, prove that God wants us in community? Because God is a trinity, does that mean that we must exist in a community? Is that what this passage is saying? By the end of this episode, you're going to realize that ain't what this passage is saying at all. In fact, he's engaging in, in biblical bamboozling. And uh, and then from there, what we're going to do is we're going to fast forward a little bit to talk, you know, listen to some of the things he says about the, the, the imperative of how you know, we need to reflect the image of God. And, uh, and you know, we'll listen to a couple of segments and then go to the end during his prayer because his prayer, again, if you're not sure what he's talking about, the prayer is always the, set, the close of the sale. And you'll find out what it is, the points that he was making and what he thought was important in his plenary. So, Grab your Bible and uh, roll up your sleeves. Grab a pencil or an, and pad of paper or something to write with because you're going to need it. And again, if you haven't listened to the lecture, resistance is futile. You'll be assimilated into the community. You need to listen to that because it will help you understand some of the stuff that's rattling behind in the background with this primer on community that's actually based on a twisting of Scripture. So to get started, let's first take a look at 1 Peter chapter 2. I'll start at verse 1. Let's read it, and then we'll get to Judah Smith. Here's what it says. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow into salvation, or grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So... So the honor is for you who believe, 
But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But as... But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now, just so you know, that's the text that he started by reading. Okay? And when he he didn't really actually teach on this text, when he came back to it, he talked about the fact that we're, we're that we're stones, that we're building materials, okay. But it was all part of a lecture regarding community. So, with that, now that now that you've got the text, I mean, did you notice any? By the way, did you notice any admonitions here of how you need to become a community or anything like that? No, it was just talking about Christ and then implications of how it pertains to us, but there was no imperatives telling us that we need to embrace community or anything like that. So with that in mind, let me tell you again what happened. He went from reading that to having a quick short prayer, then talking about Shark Week, and then trying to argue from Genesis chapter 1 regarding community. This is where we're going to spend our first amount of time. So uh, with that, here is Judah Smith. Here we go. Look, I don't, I don't think it's by chance. I don't think it's strange that even in nature, we're pointed to the power and significance of community. All you got to do is turn on the Discovery Channel, and before long, you see some indicator, some arrow pointing us to the power, significance, and validity of, of community. Have you ever read... Um, like, can you remember the first time you read your Bible? Can you remember back that far? Some of you have been, you know, saved forever. Um, some, some of you just recently. But, but I remember, I really can remember, about eight, nine years old, I really started reading my Bible more like when I was 16. But I can remember when I was like eight or nine. I grew up a, a pastor's kid. To be honest, I'm the, as far as we can tell, I'm the seventh generation preacher in our family. So, no, don't clap. Pray for the Smiths. We got issues, okay? But... That's all that means. But I remember reading Genesis 1 for the first time. Y'all ever read Genesis 1? And, and God is, well, he's talking to himself. And he says, um, Genesis 1, 26, I think it is. He goes, uh, let us make man in our image. Now, for those of you that are not scholars, you're wondering what I wondered. Wait a minute. Who's us? And who's our, our image? I mean, it's like, hello? Anybody there? God, (laughs) I know this is awkward, but who are you talking to? I mean, you're God. I suppose you can talk to yourself. And if you want an alter ego, you could create it, I suppose. But who are you talking to? Let, Let us make man in our image. Now, for those of you that are so scholarly and you've been around church for so long, you're like, Clearly, that is a reference to the triune Godhead. Okay. For the rest of us that like watch NFL games and live real life, it's a bit... Like if you ever catch me by myself referring to myself as us and our and we, get me to the doctor as fast as you can. 
But obviously, it's true, the scholarly amongst us are right. What God is referencing is himself. For we serve a God who is one God, but three persons. I don't mean to lose you right off the bat here this morning, but, but I, I know you're with me. Okay, I'm going to point something out. He's correct. This is actually a correct explanation of the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, if you've spent time in a seeker-driven community or a seeker-driven church, you've probably heard this argument. Now, if I when I try to track back this argument, I keep coming up with Jurgen Moltmann, the uh, liberal <clears throat> the liberal theologian from Tübingen, um, who is a Hegelian, as as being kind of the the place where the seeker driven and the emergent folks learn this argument from. But it's a spurious argument, and I'll explain why in a minute. The argument basically goes: because God's a Trinity, God exists in a community, and we're created in the image of God. Therefore, we're created for community. You're thinking, well, that sounds pretty solid to me, Chris. Are you sure you, that's 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 not correct? I'll explain why it's not in a minute, but I want uh, Judah to kind of f- play out the argument just a little bit more, and then we'll explain what's wrong with it. There's something seriously wrong with the argument, and I'll show you here in a second. We serve a God who is singular in character and nature, but plural in person. We serve God the Father... God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. This is our God. This is the God we sing to. This is the God we preach about. This is the God we pray to. This is the God we we, we just think about often. Our, Our mind goes to this is God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. He is beautifully three in one. Distinguishable, but but indivisible. Let us Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Make man in our Father, Son, Holy Spirit image. How important is community to God? Well, wait a minute. God is a community in and of himself. How important is... Okay, now I'm going to stop there for a second here and just do a little bit of corrective work. Is God a community? Now, the reason I'm asking the question is because although this sounds right, words have meaning, okay? So if you were to go to merriamwebster.com, for instance, and type in the word community, here's, here's the definitions. A community, a unified body of individuals as a state or a commonwealth or a unified body of individuals as the people with common interests living in a particular area, broadly, the area itself, okay? A unified body of individuals as an interacting population of various kinds of individuals, as species in a common location. A group of people with a common characteristic or interest living together within a larger society, a group linked by a common policy, a body of persons or nations having a common history or common social, economic, and political interest. You see what I'm saying here? If we were to just look at the definition of the word community, the definition doesn't actually apply to God. Although it sounds right upon further review and closer scrutiny to say that God is a community 
actually is doing violence to the doctrine of the Trinity and is not ever anywhere in Scripture said that God is a community. The Bible doesn't say it, and to equate God with a community is, well, to not pay attention to the meanings of words. So I throw a flag on the play, and I say, no. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that God is a community, and just because God is a trinity does not equate him with a community, because when you look at the definition of the word community, it doesn't fit. Okay, that's strike one. Let me back this up just a little bit. And we'll continue. Well, wait a minute. God is a community in and of himself. How important is community to God? Well, God is a community. (laughs) While we're on the subject. So that brings us back to the, the passage I just quoted in Genesis or the verse I just quoted. Let us make man in our image so we are made in the image of who our God we are made in the image of our God our God who within himself is a community distinguishable indivisible singular in nature and character but plural in person our God who is a community we are created in his image now notice what he did there Okay, he pulled a fast one. No, God is not a community. By definition, he is not. And then he says that we're created in the image of God and kept reiterating, and God is a community, and God is a community, and we're created in the image of God. Okay, you get what's going on here? We continue. We are community beings designed for community. You are not an isolated individual living in close proximity to others. You are interconnected, interdependent being intended for relationship and intimacy. Okay, now weird. Okay, coming back to this. Remember I read to you 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 1 through 10ish. And um, nowhere was this an, an imperative that you need to exist in community and talk about our interdependence and all that kind of stuff. This has nothing to do with First Peter chapter 2. He then makes an allusion to Genesis chapter 1, let us make man in our image, talks about God being a trinity, and then says that that's the equivalent to being a community. No, it's not. Oh, and by the way, here's the other part of it. Yes, we are created in the image of God. But you got to understand a few things regarding the attributes of God. For instance, okay, since I can make an argument that from Scripture that shows us that God is eternal, okay, that he has no beginning of days and no end of days. There's Scriptures that say this, that God is eternal, He is not bound by time and space. I can also show you from Scripture passages that clearly teach that God is omnipresent, okay? And I can also show you Scriptures that show that God is omniscient, that he he knows everything, okay? That there's nothing that's hidden from God. In fact, the psalmist says that there's no place that he could go to hide from God. You know, whether it's as deep as Sheol or up to the highest heaven, he could not be where God ain't, okay? 
Scriptures are clear on this. Okay. So if you're now watch how the argument goes then. Okay. Using his argument. Therefore, since God is eternal, God is omniscient and God is omnipresent. Therefore, since you're created in the image of God, therefore you need to be eternal, omniscient and omnipresent. Why aren't you embracing these attributes of the, of God? You were created in his image, right? And you're going, wait, wait, wait. See, on the one hand, the syllogism sounds tight, doesn't it? You're created in the image of God. God is omniscient. He's eternal and omnipresent. Therefore, since you're created in the image of God, you are therefore eternal, omniscient, and omnipresent. Mm -hmm. What's wrong with this puzzle? Well, here's the problem, okay? Just because we're made in the image of God does not mean that every one of the attributes of God has been communicated to us or been imparted to us as part of that image, Okay, we are not God. We are not eternal. We are not omniscient. We are not omnipresent. In fact, we're local and we are not, you know, you get what I'm saying. I can list other attributes about God that we are not. Okay, yet there are certain attributes of God that have been communicated to us. For instance, God is love. We are as his creatures have been given the capacity to love, to feel, to have wrath, to, you, you get what I'm saying. And so, yes, there are certain ways in which we reflect the image of God, but that doesn't mean that we have all of the attributes of God. Now let's come back to the nature of God himself. God in his essence, in his being is one God and three persons. There are not three gods. There's only one God. There are not three eternals. There's one eternal. Does that make sense? And God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And these three persons are the one God. The God the Father is not the Son, and God the Son is not the Holy Spirit. Yet there are not three gods, there's only one God. This is what Scripture teaches. Okay? Now, God's you know, God's essence as a triune being has not been communicated to us. We individual human beings as we are are we have one person to one being not three persons to one being but one person to one being so we are not a trinity this aspect of god this attribute of god regarding his very nature and essence has not been given to us so here judah smith has two strikes against him number one it is not correct to say that the Trinity is a community. I'm sorry, it is just not. Okay, if words have meanings, that is a strained theological category at best, or definition at best. And number two, even if God were a community, it does not necessarily follow that therefore we are to live in community. Where did this philosophy and ideology come from? Because it's clear when you take time to examine the scripture, this is not what the scripture is teaching. This isn't what 1 Peter 2 teaches. This is not what Genesis 1 teaches. Where does this come from? 
Again, I keep putting the plug in here. You need to listen to my lecture entitled, Resistance is Futile, You Will Be Assimilated into the Community. When you hear that lecture, you will understand the the genesis and starting point of this ideology. This is not a theology. This is an ideology, and it's foreign to Scripture, and this is not what the Bible teaches. But we continue with uh, Judah Smith's uh, waxing eloquent, if you would, regarding Adam and Eve and the community and all that kind of stuff. Bible says in Proverbs, a man who isolates himself seeks his own desires and rages against all wise judgment. He rages. God has intended each and every one of us to live within community. I can prove to you how important relationship and community is. And of course, when we speak of this concept of community, that is the essence of the church. This term we throw around now and have for centuries, this this word church, it really is a community that is all centered and around Jesus. And so when we say church, we say community. When we say community, we we say church. Yeah, um, again... I don't necessarily think that church is perfectly synonymous with the term community. There's a lot of community churches out there. And if that if the church and community were synonymous, then that would be a statement from the Department of Redundancy Department. You get what I'm saying? That's like saying that uh, we're, the, we're the church church. Now, I see, again, there's something screwy going on with this we're not exactly hearing christian theology we're hearing stuff that is basically made to look like it has its origin in god's word but upon closer review you know if you watch football you know they have those you know the the refs get under you know get under the hood and they look they look at the instant replay and upon further review yeah no this is not what these passages are saying at all what is this now I'm not again. I'm not going to play the whole thing here. I'm going to fast forward a little bit now, and I want you to listen a little bit as he, you know, he he now talks about well, reflecting the image of God and certain things that well, yeah, you got to hear it for yourself. Here's more Judah Smith. What is man's oh, oh, oh. yeah? So he's talking about what is the, this cosmic question? What is man's all? That's what all 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 is. Oh. Well, brings us back to Genesis. Man's all is very simple. It is to reflect the image of its creator. So man's all, the big cosmic question, what is man's all, is to reflect the image of his creator, which means community. Listen. This is mankind's all. Sounds like, by the few claps we've heard, there, are, there is a remnant in this place that agrees with my premise. <laughs> what is man's all? To reflect the image of our God. This is our passion. What's the image of our God? By the way, he, this is, again, this is bad theology. Because the image of God in human in humanity has been broken by our fall into sin. It's a 
basically obliterated image. We, we poorly reflect God's image as sinful human beings. So this is, this is not tied to good sound exegesis. This is, yeah, there's something really going wrong here. This is where we find our greatest fulfillment. This is where we find our truest meaning. When we reflect the image of our creator, creation, all of creation, and even, even creation's centerpiece, which is mankind, all of creation finds its proper place and meaning and positioning and purpose when it accurately reflects the image of the creator. Okay, and how do we do that? This is our passion. Now, having established that, and having just a few moments ago established that we serve the great three in one, we must conclude, my brothers and sisters, that it is impossible to fulfill man's all alone. Can't do it alone. Apparently, you can't you can't fulfill man's all. The cosmic question: What is man's all? Can't do it alone because you got to reflect the community um, God. For God within Himself is Father, Son, and Spirit. So, if mankind is going to reflect the creator in an accurate, majestic, in the truest sense we possibly can. We then that would mean we're sinless, right? That's how we would do it. The sinless, holy creator. Uh, let me back this up. Watch where he's taken us. It, the, the way that humanity is to reflect the image of God. The creator in an accurate majestic in the truest sense we possibly can. We must conclude today here in Atlanta, Georgia, that it is impossible to fulfill our ultimate purpose and plan in this life alone. The fact is, I need you. As awkward as it is to admit, some of you, I don't like you. You Falcon fans, but don't cheer. But I, I need you. This is my favorite part. You need me. <laughs> yeah, my Seahawk loving self. You need me. We need each other. I asked you a simple question this morning. What is more important than the world seeing God? What is more important than the world seeing the beauty and the majesty and the sufficiency of our Savior? What is more important than that? There is nothing more important. And if that is of the highest importance, then what urgency does that place on our interconnectedness and our commitment to community and relationship? And Our commitment to community. This is not what 1 Peter 2 is saying. This isn't what Genesis 1 teaches. What is this? Again, you need to listen to my lecture. Resistance is futile. You'll be assimilated into the community. 
It will help you. Love and respect and honor one to another. Friends, simply put, without community, our world will not see God. Okay, let me play that again. Listen again to this. But without community, our world will not see God. What is this? Without community, our world will not see God? Without community, our world will not see God. This isn't a biblical teaching. This is something very, very different. And the reality is, is that this is a very seductive ideology. Very seductive ideology. And it has a historical referent. And you, in order to find out what that historical referent is, you need to listen to my lecture. Resistance is futile. You will be assimilated into the community. Have I plugged that enough? You, you need to, if you haven't heard it, you need to listen to it. Okay. Now, I want to play a couple more things here in the lecture. I'm going to fast forward. Listen to this little bit about trusting leadership. You know, there's there's some things in this lecture that is the standard seeker-driven vision-casting litany of things you need to do, including trusting leadership. You're going to hear this um, come up again during the prayer, but listen to it where he mentions it the first time. When we get together, and I, let's be honest, getting together... It's not always easy. Trusting leadership, faulty leaders that are not perfect. Yeah, in community, getting together in a community is not easy. Trusting leadership. What is this? Going to a local place, being with people who know your name who know where you live, doing life together, studying the Bible together, challenging one another, people who call you when you're not seen or heard from, from some time. Sometimes being connected is flat annoying. Leave me alone. You don't know me. Before long, we want to do our own thing. Friends, what does this have to do with what's taught in first? Peter chapter 2. Answer, absolutely nothing. He then goes on to explain how to do community, talks about how Jesus is building something. In fact, let me play the Jesus is building something bit, and then we'll pray the pr- listen to his prayer. Hang on. Jesus is building something on this planet. A community, apparently. He's not just here to individually save people. Hang on a second. Did you hear that? Listen again. Jesus is building something on this planet. He's not just here to individually save people. Not just here to individually save people. Yeah, I've pointed this out before, okay? This is a odd statement, an odd statement, a weird statement, um, I think back to Catherine Jefford Shorey's um, speech of a few years ago where she talked about the great Western heresy of individual salvation. Now, just so you know, he does, he does, say, he does affirm individual salvation, but listen to the statement again in context. Jesus is building something and it's, well, yeah. Jesus is building something 
on this planet. He's not just here to individually save people, and of course he is. But those individuals are to be added to a collection that makes up his portrait and his picture on the planet. So this is teaching an ideology, a collectivist ideology, that emphasizes the community. That's what's really going on in this plenary delivered today by Judah Smith. Again, when you take a look biblically at what he's teaching to see if it squares with what the scripture really says in context, you find that you can't find this teaching in scripture because the Bible doesn't actually teach it in context. This is a foreign agent. This is a philosophical ideology masquerading as a biblical teaching. Now, so that you kind of get the idea of what it is that he was pushing for, let's fast forward to his prayer because, you know, the prayer is the sale, uh, the close of the sale in evangelicalism. So here he is closing the sale during his prayer and listen to the things he wants people to be praying about. If you're here today, you say, you know, Jude, I've been a bit isolated. Been a little bit resistant to relationship and community and fellowship. <laughs> Oh, man. So at the end of it, the sappy music is playing to create the emotional manipulative uh, feeling that God the Holy Spirit has now come to do business. And he, Judah Smith is saying, now, if you're here today and you're saying, oh, Judah, oh, you know, I've been resistant to community. It's, what? 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 Listen again. If you're here today, you say, you know, Judah, I've been a bit isolated been a little bit resistant to relationship and community and fellowship and maybe it's in your local church or maybe it's been some time since you've been a part of a community in a church so you need to repent of your lack of community first peter 2 doesn't teach this genesis 1 doesn't teach this maybe god's by his holy spirit just prompting you right now just talking to you just so god the holy spirit is prompting me that i need to repent of my lack of community nudging you talking to you son talking to you daughter may we value what god values he values his son and the community that he founded if you're here today and you say judah i think god's talking to me i think I need just the help of the Holy Spirit to just... Yeah, if God the Holy Spirit is talking to anybody, he's telling them to run out of the building quickly. Don't look back. Kind of like, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah style. Commit to community in this life. To commit to live life with other... Commit to community. What on earth is this? Now, I keep asking the question, but I know the answer. You need to listen to my lecture, resistance is futile, you'll be assimilated into the community. There is an ideology in play here, and it has an origin, and you need to know what it is. Believers, if that's you, just lift up your hand real quick, say, man, God's talking to me. Father, you see these hands, and most importantly, you see these hearts. Help us, Lord. By the power of your Holy Spirit, help us. Yeah, help us to commit to community. 
ay, ay, ay. What an absolute train wreck. So that was Judah Smith's, you know, lecture session today at um, Passion 2013. And as you just heard, something seriously is wrong and off with it. And yes, there's something seriously wrong and off with it. And it's extremely dangerous. And it's a philosophical ideology with a historical referent that you'd really need to stand up and have the courage to pay attention to and find out what it is. Again, the lecture, Resistance is Futile, You'll Be Assimilated in the Community. It's the May 11th, 2012 episode of Fighting for the Faith. You need to take a listen. All right, we are up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com. Or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. When we get back, we're going to be doing a sermon review, an entire sermon based upon a prophetic vision for what's happening in the days ahead in 2013. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Because all the letters of the Bible are red letters, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. <laughs> the spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner. And the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheapo Air as one of our featured advertisers. Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, click on the web banner, and book your spring or summer travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That web address again is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support. I just doing, you might ask? Well, I just conquered the outer rim planet of Pico Pond with my trusty double-barreled nuclear plasma cannon. Well, I just did in this video game. But how is it possible for someone like myself to play 13 hours straight and not get a headache? It's quite simple, really. It's because I wear gunners. When I'm rocking these babies, I'm unstoppable. They're not limited to just games, mind you. Oh, no! I rock the spreadsheet, the PowerPoint, the word processor, and when that's all done, I hop my T-16 and fry me some toasters. 
If you want to get in on the action, then head over to piratechristianradio.com forward slash gunners. You got to see it to believe it. Okay, we're back. We're well into hour number two again here today, Fighting for the Faith. Sermon review time. It's This is not going to be like any sermon you've heard here at Fighting for the Faith. And because it's not based on the Bible, I will be doing a counter-teaching during the sermon entitled, What is Preaching? And I will be demonstrating from the scriptures what preaching is. Hang on, let's cue up the music and let's do this right. Ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Daystar Church, Atlanta, Georgia. Johnny Enloe presiding. The name of the sermon is entitled Prophetic Word for 2013 Renaissance is Here. You won't need a Bible for this. This is a sermon that claims to be based upon a direct Revelation received by Johnny Enlow, who was a Seven Mountain New Apostolic Reformation guy, uh, directly from God. So, in fact, let's go ahead and just kill the music. Well, before we do, I want to explain this. Like I said, I will be doing a counter-teaching during this sermon review, since you won't need your Bible uh, for whatever Johnny is talking about. You will need it for what I'm going to be talking about. I'll be doing a counter-teaching entitled, What is Preaching? Yeah, that's right. A counter-teaching entitled, What is Preaching? And we'll be looking at the biblical definition for preaching. But I will intersperse that throughout different portions of this sermon that we're going to be listening to. So let me go ahead and kill the music. And without any further ado, here is Johnny Enloe, Daystar Church, Atlanta, Georgia. Prophetic word for 2013, Renaissance is here. Here we go. Okay. Well, I'm really excited. The word the Lord's given me for 2013. And I just want to start with a word of prayer. What do we do? Thank you. Again, for who you are, thank you, Holy Spirit, for your presence. Thank you for your presence here today. Thank you for the things you have to share with us that will encourage us for the coming year, for the coming season, that you are the God of good news, the God of a plan, the bigger than God with the better than plans. The God that has a preemptive strike and answer or a corrective strike and answer for anything that the enemy might do. I just ask that you would lead and guide this time, Holy Spirit, and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before I get to the prophetic word itself, I do want to 
acknowledge the Connecticut uh, school shooting tragedy where I believe 28 people died overall. And the soul of the nation is touched from this uh, tragedy from a couple of days ago. And there's a question going around and being answered, being answered on major news channels and sources. The question being asked is, how could God let this happen? And uh, uh, the simple answer is the gift of free will. There were scores of decisions that led up to the shooting that God, in quote... No, actually, this has nothing to do with the gift of free will. This has everything to do with the bound will, okay? Scripture teaches, Ephesians chapter 2, for instance, that all of us are born dead in trespasses and sins and at war with God and under the wrath of God. This is not a matter of free will. This is a matter of human evil as a result of our sinful and fallen, corrupt nature. Yeah, no, this is not about free will. It's not like we're born morally neutral. We're born at war and evil with God, at war with God and evil. Does that make sense? Let happen, and he gave the gift of free will, the permission to take place leading up to that day. The shooter most likely made many poor choices before this choice. His parents not to assess blame or ascribe blame to them, but they chose to divorce as a matter of free will. The reason they divorced probably carried other ingredients of choices and poor choices in it, assigned and attached to free will. And, of course, at this time, the world would like, we would like a God that gives us free will to do what we want, to misbehave, to lie, to cheat, to steal, steal, to hate, to not forgive, and then yet somehow not reap the consequences of free will that has been abused. And unfortunately, it doesn't work that way. And God has, well, say it this way, God has everything under control. But he doesn't control everything. And he is sovereign, but he most surely does not order everything to happen that does happen. And I know that could be a whole message, and this is just the hors d'oeuvre to the prophetic word, as it were. You know, evil does have parameters and restrictions so that it may not ultimately prevail, but it does have more freedom to advance than we would like. As we head into this new year, where I will share what I believe to be very good news, we must realize that signs of evil will always be a part of our reality until light totally reigns. It is a reminder of why we have to rise and shine, why we must rise and shine. Darkness always takes place in the absence of light. Darkness cannot prevail over existing light. Jesus said to us, you are the salt of the earth. But then he said, if you don't salt, if you're salt and you don't salt... You are fit to be trampled. The society you don't bring salt to will trample you. And it can't be attributed to God. Ergo, the seven mountain mandate we speak a lot about. We must have the salt 
get out of the salt shaker. Salt shaker being the church, a church building. The salt must get out of the building and show up where we work and where we live. And in the sovereignty of God, he does promise that he will make available a redemptive joy to those for to those who look for him in this way and that even death gets swallowed up in victory because he is the redemptive god the god who gets the last word in particularly as he's invited into these situations so that's just uh, just to acknowledge what has taken place and uh, and of course, there's a whole message that could be connected to that, but that's not the message I have for today. There's, I believe, a prophetic word um, for 2013, and I want to get into that now. I was awakened uh, December 10, just a few days ago, 2012, with the word for 2013. And the word the Lord gave me, just the word, just blaring, was renaissance. Okay, just keep in mind here, this now makes him the prophet Johnny Enlow, the word of the Lord that came to Johnny Enlow um, regarding the Renaissance coming in 2013. Mm-hmm. And then many things spun off of this, but this is the key word for 2013, Renaissance. The word Renaissance means a revival or rebirth, especially of culture and learning, literally means to be reborn. The Renaissance, Renaissance is known as a period in history that interrupted the Middle Ages around the 14th century and then lasted well into the 17th century. And that Renaissance was primarily... I believe, primarily a counterfeit as it brought about a rebirth of ancient Greek and Roman philosophies and values. It was thoroughly a re-manifestation of humanism and there was great attention and credit given to, quote, the genius of man. And furthermore, the unique and extraordinary ability of the human mind. The Middle Ages had bogged down in the spiritual deadness and darkness and corruption of the dominant Catholic Church at that time. And the Renaissance signified a shifting away from dead religion into the comparative or relative enlightenment or enlightenment and excitement of human freedoms when they are not held back by religious form or pressure. Okay, I'm going to pause right there and begin my counter-teaching, uh, since I don't know what he's talking about. Um, I can't find it in my Bible. It, here's the question. By the way, you can find this. I wrote this out for you as an article. It's a blog post at my Letter of Mark blog, and you can find it at letterofmark, M-A-R-Q-U-E dot U-S, letterofmark dot U-S. And the name of the uh, the post is entitled, What is Preaching? Here's what it says. What is preaching? Now, this is a question you've probably never asked. Now, 
the reason you've probably never asked this question is because, well, the answer seems self-evident. I mean, we've all been to church and heard the preacher man preach. So what kind of question is the question, what is preaching? Well, answer, it's a good one. It's a question you really should be asking. Uh, But more importantly, it is the one that you need to search in Scripture to find the answer to. And when you do that, you're likely to discover that the biblical answer to this question isn't exactly what you've experienced in your church. And that should bother you greatly. For instance, if you attend Daystar Church and you don't know, know, know what the Bible teaches regarding, you know, preaching, you might want to pay attention. Okay. <clears throat> in Paul's second pastoral letter to Timothy, he forcefully and strongly states, quote, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and by his kingdom to preach the word. Preach the word. These are three simple words, but they are packed with deep and important meaning. Oftentimes, Scripture doesn't give us long, drawn-out directions, but instead gives us highly compressed sentences that anchor us into the mind and the will of God. This is one of those kinds of statements, and a knowledge of the original languages is critical in rightly understanding these three words, preach the word. Now, the Greek phrase for preach the word is keruxon ton logon, okay? Keruxon, that is the second person singular aorist active imperative of the verb keruso. Keruso, and its primary meaning is to make an official announcement, announced, to to make known by an official herald or one who functions as such. So a keruso, you know, someone who does, who kerusos is an official who makes an official announcement as a herald. Okay, that's the idea. Now, heralds were a well-known feature of the ancient world. The reason for this is obvious. They didn't have the 11 o'clock news. These were men who were sent out on official business by a king or a governor or the emperor himself to herald or proclaim an official message and make that message known to the people. Heralds were not given any power, none whatsoever, or, or authority to change alter, or modify the message that they had been given. In fact, to do so would be treasonous. So a herald, a kerux, is the one who preached or proclaimed, you could say heralded, heralded a given official message. Now, New Testament scholar R.C.H. Lenski explains Caruso by saying this, when we translate this word preaching, Caruso, uh, the original meaning must be held fast. Preaching in the biblical sense is merely to announce clearly and distinctly exactly what God in his word orders us to announce. We dare not change the message by alteration, by omission, or by addition, The preacher is not to utter his own eloquent wisdom, but is to confine himself to the foolishness and the scandalon of the gospel. So, that's end quote. According to the words chosen by God the Holy Spirit, pastors are likened to the ancient heralds. This means that they've been given an official message to proclaim— What is the official message that they've been given to proclaim and herald? Well, the answer is found in the three words. 
We, you know, the Keruksan Tan Lagan, preach the word. Preachers, aka heralds of King Jesus, are to herald or preach the word of God and only the word of God. Let's go back and examine the immediate context, by the way, of 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, which I've been quoting, by adding a portion from chapter 3 and the remaining portion of the text from chapter 4. Here's what it says. <clears throat> but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out, theonoustos, breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. So I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who's to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Now, it's clear from the context that Paul's strong admonition to young Pastor Timothy is that he preached the written word of God and only the written word of God. For the sacred writings alone are God-breathed, theonoustos, not his dreams, not his prophetic visions, his life stories or life experiences or anecdotal jokes or things like that. No, only the sacred writings alone are theonoustos. Furthermore, God the Holy Spirit warns us through the Apostle Paul in this same text that a time would come when people would not endure listening to and hearing and learning God's word, but they would cast Christ's herald from the church and replace them with teachers who would not herald the word of God, but would tell them what they wanted to hear. Now, there are many ways to tell people what they want to hear. It's done by, well, editing the official message, you know, God's word via addition or subtraction, or distracting people by te preaching yourself rather than Christ, or preaching your so-called dreams or prophetic visions or your aspirations or your ambitions or your anecdotal life experiences. But there is only one right way. Keep this in mind. There is only one right and correct way to be a herald, and that is to faithfully deliver the message that you've been given to herald without adding to it or subtracting from it. Okay. Now, here are some other passages of scripture for you to consider. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the first one and then we'll listen to more of the sermon. And then somewhere along the line, I'll pause and I'll read some more scripture. Okay. Titus chapter 1, verse 9 through 14. He, a pastor or an elder, must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught 
so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict him. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party, and they must be silent since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, has said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Well, this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. All right. Here's a little bit more Johnny Enlow for you. We can say the acceptable part of the Renaissance is that it did place an increased value on the individual. That this valuing of the individual was an improvement over the status quo, but it was generally disconnected from a proper narrative. This is just briefly to understand some of what was previously known as the Renaissance and what the Lord has said, this is the real Renaissance. The proper narrative would value man. Man is valuable in the proper narrative, but not because man is God, but because man is made in God's image. Martin Luther was more connected to this understanding, and he came out at this time of the Renaissance, and he therefore, say, championed personal salvation as opposed to the indulgence-buying salvation, which was kind of the available salvation of souls at that time, was you buy it. Again, much more could be said here, but the point here is that the Renaissance of 2013 is not of repeat of that one, but is at minimum, we'll call it a massive upgrade on it. Whereas the historical Renaissance championed man, as we pointed out, and his accomplishments, this coming Renaissance will champion God and his accomplishments. There will be a parallel revival of culture and arts, but it will be based on men having learned more about the real God of all life and not just the God of the hereafter, which has been championed up till now in the church, is the God who offers salvation, the God who offers eternal life, but he has by and large not been manifested, not been showcased, not been evidenced as the God of here and now, but God with solutions, answers, and glory for this day and age. If we look back just for a moment at 2012, we're not quite done with 2012. But it was, if you look back a year ago when I gave the word for the year, it was uh, the first message, a message where the Lord challenged us to go after him, not just as the promise maker, but also as the promise keeper. That we are to pursue him in that way. The prophetic word for Rosh Hashanah 2012, beginning in the middle of September, just a few months ago, was that the age of the restoration of all things had begun. These emphases connect in a wholesale way with the word for 2013, Renaissance. They are totally connected. It's not a recalculation. It's not a herky-jerk move. It is further revelation on what has been being declared and revealed by the Lord for this last season. Again, the word renaissance literally means rebirth. 
And that will be the word for the year, and it will have multiple applications, probably more applications than even what I will give. We are to still go after him as the promise keeper. And we are still to understand that we are in the age where all things prophesied by the prophets will begin to manifest as never before. I believe that this year of Renaissance signifies the beginning of an era that might be even much longer than we imagined. The first Renaissance, the first period, so-called Renaissance, championed what man could do all by himself if he was not held back by religion and tradition. That's why religion was considered the opiate of the people, that which held them back, because compared to true freedom, it was. Okay, I'm going to pause right there, add a little bit more scripture from my article. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verses 2 through 5 reads, We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. We continue with this uh, sermon. This Renaissance period will champion what God can do when invited in by his sons and daughters into the very middle age structures of society. A prophetic friend of mine recently had an encounter with an angel where he was told that there is presently only 1% of the knowledge of God on earth. This present renaissance is about an explosion of the knowledge of God beginning to fill the earth, ultimately as the waters cover the sea, as it says in several places, but specifically Isaiah eleven nine. The knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. There will be a full knowledge of who he is on earth as it is in heaven. It will be all about God, not about religion, not about tradition. That knowledge has already filled the earth. We basically had the dark ages because that knowledge filled the earth. During the Middle Ages, the knowledge of religious oughts and burdens already filled the earth. The Renaissance, in fact, could be seen as a recoiling from that knowledge. As a search for a better knowledge began. And they settled on what they even called ancient knowledge or ancient paths of knowledge. But in their retro, looking back, they glorified, they went back to the Greek and Roman values and philosophies and glorified them, ignoring what was the historical fruit of that knowledge in both of those societies, in the Greek society and the Roman society. In the world itself, they harvested the fruit of that initial humanism, and it was not good. 
Ultimately, this present renaissance will lay an axe to the root of the false knowledge of the historical renaissance. As the humanistic flame that it ignited has never been put out. Knowledge of man does trump knowledge of religious form, but knowledge of God routes both of these. The way we personally must yield to this era of renaissance is by allowing new revelation on who God is to come in and burn up our inferior forms of knowledge that we all, that we all probably carry. Now, did you hear that? Regarding this prophetic utterance that he claims he got directly from God, we got to be really willing to jettison all of the, well, um, outdated and outmoded uh, forms of knowledge that we have regarding God. That would mean your Bible has to go, right? That's outdated and outmoded, and you have to be open to the new revelation. That's what he's saying here. We continue. I'll say we all carry. We all carry a measure of the two inferior forms of knowledge. There's the knowledge of religious form and religious tradition, and we all carry some of that. There is the knowledge of man, human logic, the mind of reason, the ability to think critical pros, cons. We all carry those and that. And at times, we all think that is, it's a pretty good knowledge. But now we must allow ourselves to be rebirthed into a new knowledge of who God is. A knowledge of God beyond him just being the God of salvation. That one we've been championing for hundreds of years. The earth is almost filled with that knowledge of God. Let me pause again and read a little bit more scripture from the article that I wrote, What is Preaching? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through chapter 2, verse 2. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. So where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach, Russo, to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach, Russo, Christ crucified, which is a stumbling block for Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world in order to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God." And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. 
And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. Let me ask you a quick question. So we've got to abandon the inferior forms of knowledge about God? Well, which would you think is the inferior form of knowledge? What I just read to you from God's word? Or the so-called prophetic vision that Johnny is supposedly delivering, that he received, he claims, from God the Holy Spirit? We continue. Ephesians 1, 17 through 19, I want to read that to you. Here's what it says, Ephesians 1, 17 through 19, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened that you may know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power. The renaissance, this real renaissance, will be a time of our eyes being enlightened as described here. This enlightenment will be about how big he can be in us and through us as we believe him and invite him in with a better way of doing everything. The rebirthing of Renaissance takes place as we go into him as we have never gone into before and we allow him into us as never before. Us in him in unprecedented fashion and he in us in an unprecedented fashion. A key scripture I believe I shared even a couple of weeks ago here at Daystar for this season, for 2013, for experiencing the renaissance. The renaissance will be available. Not all will experience it. A key will be Paul's scripture and his counsel from Philippians 3.13. The obligation for us to begin to experience this season of rebirth is where he says, but this one thing I do, Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are before. Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are before. If you remember Lot's wife, she turned into a pillar of salt when she looked back. So notice he's twisting that Philippians text to basically mean you got to forget what's behind. That would be the Bible And whatever knowledge of God we have right now, and we need to be open to the new things that are ahead of us, the new revelations coming to people like Johnny Enlow. He was told to forget those things which are behind. She couldn't. She looked back. She turned into a pillar of salt. When you look back, your salt gets locked down and non-functional. We are called to be the salt of the earth, but we can become a statue of disappointment if we look back at past losses. You, you better not look back or your salt will get bogged down. You don't, you don't want that to happen. Yeah, nothing worse than bogged down salt. And there's been a season, this past season has been a season of a lot of loss for many people, for many people in the body of Christ. 
God is making the earth, the church, and almost everybody go through proper GPS recalculating. Maybe GPS is for God's prophetic signal. Ah, so is your GPS God's prophetic signal needing recalculating? Are you not getting the signal? Hmm. We thought we knew the way to our destiny, but for many of us, we were wrong. There was a turn we didn't expect. There was a road we were expecting to be there that wasn't there. There was something that didn't take place the way we thought it was going to happen when we first entered it into the GPS. So we can either collapse and quit and cry over the fact that we were wrong, or we can just follow the updated GPS signal. Recalculating. I believe in many cases there wasn't even a wrong turn. It was just, again, this thing, there was a road we assumed would be there wasn't there. Don't look back. Don't quit. Don't freeze with disappointment. Don't cry over spilt milk. Don't drown in grief over what didn't happen or what died. Don't weep that things didn't go how you expected. This is a new season. There is a renaissance, a renaissance, a rebirthing. And you, I could have sworn I heard him say re-nonsense. Yeah, this is re-nonsense, all right. You will miss it if you look back. And if you can't get over that which was lost. Relationships that were lost, positions that were lost, assumptions that were lost. Renaissance, renaissance, rebirth. Lord began to speak to me about the coming explosion of disruptive knowledge. There's a term presently used in the marketplace called disruptive technology. It describes a technological breakthrough that is uh, a game changer. It is disruptive because it erases the old way of doing things or the old way of thinking. A disruptive technology always ultimately eradicates an existing technology. To make it practical, you know, you don't have, most of you probably don't have record players, eight track tapes, didn't see anybody come in with those, a phone with a long cord outside there, large computers, that's more, that's just kind of even recent, relatively recent history, large computers are all victims, all these things I mentioned are all victims of disruptive technology of new knowledge, of disruptive knowledge. A new knowledge was known that conspired against an old knowledge. This is generally good for everyone in society, except for those who were the protectors or vanguards of the former knowledge. Imagine how exciting... It would be if it were discovered that the hydrogen in water could be channeled into an energy source that with 
that at almost no cost or very little cost could be the new energy source and with no pollution. That would be awesome for most people. That would be a great example of a disruptive technology. But now think of all the people and companies and nations that make their living off of oil production. They would not be happy. In our future, we have headed into the era of disruptive knowledge of God. And there will be so much disruptive knowledge of God that it's going to be a game changer. That all are going to enjoy, except the previous God experts (laughs) that aren't willing to change. The Lord showed me about three disruptive effects of this new knowledge of who God is. We're championing and speaking of the God of all life, not just the God of hereafter. We've heard for scores and scores of years. But if you die tonight, do you know that you'll go to heaven? That knowledge is out there. We don't need to restate that again today. What's not known very much about is the God who is available now today. Did you catch what he just said? We don't need to keep talking about salvation. That knowledge is already out there. We don't need to restate it. Well, whatever this prophetic vision is, it has as its goal the silencing of the message of salvation. He just said it. The God even David could see, I would have despaired unless I thought I could see the goodness of God in the land of the living. There's three disruptives coming. Disruptive revelation, number one. Disruptive technology, number two. Disruptive glory. I'm going to speak briefly about each one of these. Disruptive revelation. There will begin to be so many people having so many encounters with angels, with Jesus, and with heaven that it's going to be disruptive. It's going to be disruptive to existing theologies and existing doctrines. There will soon be too many verifiable supernatural experiences and encounters to keep believing that they can't happen. Entire audiences and then stadiums will see angels in heaven. And this is what's going to make it disruptive. It will have been seen by many at one time and not just one or two that we have to trust. I continue from my article entitled, What is Preaching? Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. All the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday. 
in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform and they had, that they had made for the purpose. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen and Amen, lifting up their hands. And then they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamim, Akub, Shabbatai, Hadiah, Maasiah, Kelatah, Azariah, Jazabad, Hanan, Pelaliah, and the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. We continue. There will soon be so many fascinating, mind-boggling healings that it will disrupt once and for all the part of dispensational knowledge that healings aren't for today. And that's good. Because that's what I mean by disruptive revelation. It will knock out status quo doctrines and theologies and theological assumptions. There will begin to be so much disruptive revelation that you will not be able to hardly call yourself a Christian unless you believe in an almighty, powerful God because he is doing almighty, powerful things in your midst, around you, with healing, with manifestations, with angels. He's rescuing. He's supernaturally feeding many with just a little bit. He's replacing legs. He's replacing eyes. He's replacing organs. He is multiplying money. He's multiplying food. He's taking people up to heaven. He's letting us see the four living creatures. He's telling profound secrets. He's unraveling amazing mysteries. Renaissance. An explosion into the knowledge of God. Remember everyone, we are operating at 1% knowledge of who he is. Believe me, as this number goes up, we're going to enjoy the season. It's going to be fun, but it's going to be disruptive. And the guardians of the old are going to want to war against the new. David brought a whole new type of armor to the battle, and it was disruptive to Saul. And ultimately to Saul and his armor, and, and, and we see that he tried then multiple times to kill him. Now forget looking out there and pointing a finger and yeah, yeah, I think that person, that denomination, that church is a Saul. You will be a Saul if you don't embrace Renaissance. 
So more than likely, the church I attend is a Saul church, and you're going to be a Saul too if you don't embrace the renaissance, the new information, the new disruptive revelations and healings that uh, <clears throat> uh, Johnny Enlow here is prophesying are going to come. You don't want to be a Saul church, do you? Here's a fact, a reality, and I can tell you that having led church along with my wife here for 14 years, people overall hate change. They like change to be prophesied over them, but they don't actually like to experience it. Israel, going to the scriptures, would rather stay in the desert eating manna ad nauseum rather than adapt disruptive revelation that says, nations are your inheritance. Caleb was the cuckoo trying to tell them there was another level of life available for them. That was going to entail too much change. Moving beyond your recent past disappointments are a good practice for you embracing a life of rebirthing, of revival, of renewal, of reformation. Disruptive revelation is coming. And you will know it's the real thing when you see God exalted and glorified as never before. Heresy brings confusion and usually exalts a man. If, this, if you're worried about, oh man, this, I'm tired of all these clowns that have been saying all these supernatural things and, and we're not sure if it's true or not. Well, that's why it's going to be disruptive because it's going to be in mass in the coming days. And it's going to be that which exalts God and not a person. And he's going to be glorified. The new disruptive revelation will just make Jesus more famous. So heresy has nothing to do with false doctrine. It just has to do with whether or not it exalts God or a person. Uh-huh. That ain't the biblical uh, definition of heresy, by the way. And all the earth. And you'll make God more desirable among the nations. As it says in Haggai chapter 2, he will shake everything that can be shaken and the desire of the nations will come. Because he is disruptive revelation. A little bit about disruptive technology, just some of the things the Lord was showing me. I believe he showed me there will be at least four major alternative energy sources and several lesser sources that will be part of this disruptive technology. Oil will not be the energy source of the future, though there will be a gradual world weaning from dependence on it. The energy sources that will remain will have this characteristic about them. Number one, they won't pollute. Number two, they will have been given supernaturally to a believer The inside of it, the technology of it will have been given supernaturally to one who believes in God. Number three, this believer will be one who holds a special place in his heart for Israel. I believe those are three markers of the new disruptive technology 
for energy sources that is coming. It won't pollute. It will be... Get- yeah, I apologize for disrupting his um, <clears throat> so-called prophetic word uh, with God's word. But, uh, yeah, God's word has a tendency to be disruptive like that. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. This is continuing with uh, what I wrote in the um, What is Preaching um, post. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Where do we find that, by the way? In the written word of God. And behold, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. Yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to disrupt his disruptive speech here with this disruptive prophetic stuff, but I had to get the word of God in there because we're not hearing it. Yeah, we continue. Given to a believer, and this believer will hold a special place in his heart for Israel. Medical science will be another area of renaissance and the advent of disruptive technology. Divine insights on the blood, on the brain, and bones will disrupt what is presently considered science. Connected to this, there will also be disruptive breakthroughs in identifying, identifying sources of true nutrition and putting together a proper holistic approach to all the ingredients of health. It's amazing the times we live in. There's never existed more scattered pieces of, quote, knowledge regarding being healthy, and yet never has there been more confusion as how to put those pieces together. And therefore, very possibly the most unhealthy society ever. We can keep people alive, but miserably alive. Olden days, they just die. Now we keep them alive. We can help people suffer longer. And as things presently are, we are at war with our food and at war with our bodies. Everybody's feeling guilt as they eat their food. There's something wrong about it. We're at war with our bodies, and yet it's not working. I saw, I think, two days ago, a brand new report out of a British journal that states that Obesity has now passed infectious diseases and malnutrition as the world's greatest health crisis. It it kills more, it it costs more, and it disables more than starvation, malnutrition, or infectious diseases is obesity. How is that possible? In great, in great part because conflicting, confusing, contradictory, inferior knowledge exists. And even if you're a healthcare expert and you're listening to this, you're going to change some of your concepts in the coming days in order to really receive some high-level stuff that is going to be game-changer. If you are a believer working in this industry... And you stand in the gap believing God is bigger than and has better than plans, then you are a landing strip for this Renaissance anointing that is being released. Weird that his focus here, the, the bigger than, greater than God kind of thing, sounds a lot like what we heard from Louis Giglio the other night. Just pointing it out. We continue. Major angels. I feel like the Lord showed me. There's major, major angels 
in size and amount that have been released to help, to strategize, and to fund healers that have been commissioned. That this took place beginning Rosh Hashanah 2012. Ultimately, I believe he showed me there will be a connection between the two areas that I just mentioned of health and energy sources. There will be a synchronization of understanding of the best fuel sources for the planet, that the best fuel sources for the planet also are the best fuel sources for human beings. Maybe not so ironically, I don't know if you've seen this study, but over 90% of present-day what are called vitamins, because everybody knows we're unhealthy and food doesn't have what it used to have in it and we need more, and so everybody knows you should have vitamins. There's never been a society taking more vitamins and never been a society more sick. It's because 90%, over 90%, I believe somebody said it was 97% of present-day vitamins have a petroleum base to them. Not so surprisingly, they are not really making people better. And they're considered natural because technically petroleum is naturally occurring. Of course, every area of society will ultimately be invaded by disruptive technology. That's why we arise and shine. It's going to be seen on the arising sons and daughters of the king. And again, these two areas were just two areas that were highlighted to me. These are examples of this renaissance explosion. I want to talk a bit, just for a moment, about disruptive glory. I was speaking about disruptive revelation, dis- disruptive technology, disruptive glory. Yeah, I'm going to engage in a disruptive uh, tactic here uh, in the sermon review. I'm done. I'm going to stop. I'm going to disrupt this this prophetic word altogether and basically say, this ain't God, the Holy Spirit. None of this is from God, the Holy Spirit. These are just the ravings of a false prophet. We don't need to listen to this stuff. We need to listen to God's word. If you know anybody that attends Daystar Church in Atlanta, Georgia, you need to let them listen to this. They're being taught by a false prophet. He, what we heard has absolutely nothing to do with what God has revealed in his word and what pastors are to be preaching and teaching. That's to be found in the written word of God. All scripture is theonoustos. That means it is God-breathed. The job of the pastor is to herald and teach the written word of God, not do what this guy has been doing. All right, we're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. What'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian till tomorrow. May God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>